This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about the money, boys! Here we go again. In the Coast Guard, they say you gotta go out. They don't say you gotta come back in. Ahoy there, and welcome back to this special episode of Franchise Fatigue. I am your host, Gabe Green, and I am here with my first mate, James Hamrick. Because, you know, it's a nautical movie. Uh, how's it going? It's going pretty good. How are you? I'm doing very well. Um, so we just finished our voyage through the Men in Black trilogy, and before we begin Toy Story, uh, we decided to have a, a throwback to our previous show, Underrated, and we are going to talk about Disney's 2016 film, The Finest Hours. And uh, very briefly, going back to Men in Black, <laughs> news broke basically less than, like, like five days after we finished recording on, that, on Men in Black 3 that F. Gary Gray is in talks uh, to direct the next film in the series. He's uh, the director of the la- latest uh, Fate of the Furious, as well as um, a- uh, Straight Outta Compton and a couple other cool films like uh, what's the, the Mark Wahlberg heist movie, um, Italian Job. Oh, yeah, nice. So, which uh, I I I really I really like his direction that I've seen, so I would I would be totally up for that. And of course, they would announce it right after we finish the series. Yeah, but now with these releasing, you know, Men in Black seems more relevant. By the time these these come out, you know, we we really knew what we were doing. They'll be yes. relevant when they release. I tell myself that every day. Uh, before we cast off on our discussion of the finest hours, I'd ask you guys if you enjoy the show to please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes and like us on Facebook. And since we're uh, throwing back to underrated, I thought it'd be fun to uh, go back and do the, the brief discussion on recent films we've seen this week. Uh, I really missed that. Uh, so, James, have you seen any cool movies this week you want to talk about? Yeah, so I've just seen two just the past day. Um I actually just now got back from seeing Maze Runner, The Death Cure, nice. uh, which I have a feeling we may end up doing another throwback to uh, Underrated with this uh, because the bad reviews really make me sad because I feel like reading them, people just feel like they get a free, a free pass to give it a bad review and not really have to defend their position. Uh, you know, it's just, oh, it's, it's a YA movie to a sequel that was too long ago. The investment's gone, like, and it has just enough faults in it where I think credibility is given to these uh, negative reviews. But I think all of those are made in the face of some really good direction. Like, there's really cool stuff going on in a lot of these scenes and even though it doesn't move quite as well as his other ones, I still think for what all he had to do in one movie, how many, not tonal shifts, but just visual shifts going from this Mad Max landscape to this almost Blade Runner looking place and um, while still incorporating almost those, there's, the, there's a specific scene in a tunnel that to me is like almost one of the one of the best zombie type scenes in any of that kind of genre. And so... He's juggling so much, and it never feels jarring. Uh, And I really hope... I know you've really championed him as a director for a while, and I completely agree that I do hope he gets better property, because while I like this, I think most of the faults of this series, and I say this having not, you know, read the, the books, 
but I feel like most of the faults of the series are actually in the source material. There's just some goofy stuff that you can't really make work. I, but, have, re- I have read the books, and that's true. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, I, I think based on what he was given, I think he can really do some, some good movies. M- the MCU should really pick him up. Yeah, having championed West Ball basically since 2014 when I first saw this, it was uh, felt very vindicating to see like all the reviews, even the negative ones, uh, compliment uh, his direction in this in this final film. And there, I mean, and the thing that I have always loved is the direction and the cast. I think the, you know, the story is kind of wishy washy, but he 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 always gives it a great sense of pace. So it's always moving and he keeps it, he keeps the focus on the characters and the, with these fantastic actors, you really can't help but get invested in them. And I think he always understands where the emotion is and, and like when to kind of ignore the plot when it gets kind of goofy and make sure we're looking at the characters we care about. Um, it's yeah, it's, it's definitely not perfect, but you know, as a um, finale to this series that has been way better than it has any right to be, uh, I think this is, is – I found it very satisfying. I've seen it twice, and I, I might see it again sometime. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. And I, I saw it coming off of re-watching the first two two days ago. Um, and I'm not sure I have a favorite of the three. There's I've kind of got pros and cons for all three of them. I think this is the most flawed ones, but I also think it has some of my favorite moments of the whole trilogy. Mm-hmm. Um, the initial – uh, train rescue and there's a lot of moments in the finale while the finale is too long he some of the vistas some of his um, some of the composition in these scenes are really great to where I almost forgot I was watching a YA movie like the he brought a very real sense of weight and gravit- uh, gravitas to this kind of goofy plot um, and so it felt in some ways you know very intentionally more epic than the others. And I also feel like I'm kind of a, a sucker for finales. Most other than the ones where it's kind of unanimously agreed that the third is the worst. I tend to favor the last one. Um, mm-hmm. And so I'm not sure if this is my favorite, but I think all three of them are kind of fighting for that spot. Yeah. There are definitely some pretty strong feels as well in this one. Yeah. Uh, anything else? Yeah. So I think most of us were all taken by surprise by the announcement and instant subsequent release of the Cloverfield paradox. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there were a lot of there were a lot of trailers that I knew were going to be here, so I was super excited. And I know that the initial Cloverfield is not a perfect film at all, but there's just something so cool about everything that surrounded it that the movie almost feels more like an experience than a movie. Like, just go, this. what is this Cloverfield, this strange marketing, and you're you're in there. And I remember some people were, like, wondering what they had signed up for after the first 20 minutes when it's just this party, and then everything starts going crazy, and turns out it's this big monster movie. I love that all so much, and I can kind of keep myself in that mindset to where when I rewatch it, I just, I still can't help but fall in love with it. And then 10 Cloverfield Lane came out, and just ended up being amazing on its own merit, like without relying, although it had really cool marketing as well. That was just an amazing movie by itself. Yeah. And so whenever the teaser for it came on during the Super Bowl, I lost my mind. I was so excited. 
And then whenever I looked up, you know, because it said coming very soon is how they worded it. And then I looked up and a few minutes later, they announced that it would be released on Netflix immediately following the game. So everybody there was like, okay, game's over. We start this. Agreed. And we all ended up staying there and starting it afterwards. Um, so with that overlong setup, I went in super excited and happy. And I was ultimately pretty disappointed. Um I think all of the production woes were kind of proven true here. I see why Paramount was not ready to release in the theater. I think, first of all, um, Alien Covenant is a much better film. And I think even Life is a, a better movie. It has a better grip on its characters and its story. Yeah, all, all those deeply memorable characters from Life. <laughs> yeah, well, they were characters. At, le- at the very least, they kind of were Despite being shallow, they were people. This one just... Yeah. But with those bombing, and I think both being, especially Covenant, being of considerably higher quality, there was no way that this was going to do well. And I think it was just a genius way to spin it, to be like, hey, look, guys, we're continuing our crazy marketing, and we're just releasing it now. Um, so I think that that was really smart to do it. But... Man, I think the the backlash would have been much worse than it is were this to go to theaters. The this movie has such a weird structure. It opens up with just a really really poorly written uh, exchange between like the lead character and her husband, where everybody like she's literally just stating her goals. She might as well be looking at the camera. And I, I don't know, it's just, from I, I started getting worried after that initial scene. And then we jump right into the station and move into a montage that covers like two years to where like by the time stuff goes down, instead of grounding us in the characters and the dynamic, they shot themselves in the foot by doing all of that with the dialogue-less montage. And, and then after that, it's despite it, it feels rushed because all of the important stuff or a lot of the important stuff happens either off screen or in montages like the movie's got like two or three of them and the actual bulk of full fully fledged scenes feels like just a really weird series of odd events um the acting is is okay um which is sad because that's david Oyelowo and daniel brewer right yeah, and and they're never bad, but they're just playing very, very, very bland characters. And I think ultimately my biggest problem with the movie is the tonal shifts. Nobody reacts to the situation like a normal human being would. Jokes are being made when jokes should never be made. Moments that should have been played up like horror moments. Like During this whole movie, my mind was like, what if Ridley Scott got his hands on this? Because there, are, I won't say what they are, but there's a couple moments where I'm like, "Why did he say that? Why did he make a joke? This should have been tense. What is he doing?" And it also just feels like he's stuck in the mid 2000s with so, like, I mean, you thought Thor had Dutch angles? My <laughs> goodness! And it's got the super cheesy kind where the Dutch angle is like a, at a fixed location, and we have a character far, like, far away, walk directly like two inches from it, where it's that weird kind of slightly pointed downward angle tilted in their forehead it's just signifying uh, mental duress attempting to (laughs) it's signifying my mental duress (laughs) but 
I can't be too mad because it did drop on Netflix and the best thing I will say for it is it helps contextualize what they want from this series a bit more. I, despite having so many weird unanswered questions, I kind of have, I've been given, even if a broken lens, a a lens at least as at what they're doing here. Uh, and that's more than I could say before. And I think they've opened the door to some really cool stuff. Yeah, I, I've lost pretty much all anticipation for this when it was announced it was going that they were in talks with Netflix. It was like, well, yeah, the studio d- thinks they have a real stinker here. And with the reactions, I'm, I can't say I'm all that excited, but I, I probably will end up seeing it since it is free on Netflix. And I did like, I did like Ten Cloverfield Lane, at least. Um, so all, all I all else I've seen uh, this this week is uh, I'm watching through the uh, MCU in preparation for Infinity War, and I this week was Thor. And I, I, I just love this film so much. It's just so sweet and kind-hearted, and and it's it's also really really gorgeously shot. Um, the use of colors, and even amidst all the crazy Dutch angles, the compositions he can get within those those goofy angles, so just many, re- <laughs> is really lovely. I mean, it's just it's such a good-looking movie. Uh, the the but it's always it's always focused on the humanity of Thor and up. Uh, all the characters and it's just it's it's very it's pretty short it just gets in you know tells his story gets out there's no wasted time but it's just such a again sweet little movie that has a really solid little arc in the center and i love how it it opened up the mcu i know we talked about this on an underrated episode but i just love how it opened up the mcu into this crazy universe and kenneth branagh was absolutely the, the perfect director for this uh this thing and I would love it to see him come back to the MCU. Yeah, what what's so amazing about that movie to me is 16 movies in and it's still completely unique. The the lack of action in it and I I feel like it's because Branna is such a prestigious director and people kind of know his strength is just dialogue and his the earnestness and um the fact that his movies all kind of wear their hearts on their sleeve. It's where he knew that by signing him on, he probably figured they knew what they were getting. And so it's like, okay, I'm just going to make my movie. And it's, it's such a nice little self-contained... It, the, so much of the movie is contained in just like this um, New Mexican town that's incredibly small. Uh, and yet it's this... It's a story. It's got to start and finish. And there, like you said, there's a really nice contained arc here. And... Overall, I don't know. I don't really see anything about it that there's to dislike. And then whenever you had posted that you were on that one, it just kind of triggered the score in my mind and my head went to um, the the Sons of Odin theme. And for the past three days, I've kind of been humming Sons of Odin. Yeah, best uh, MCU score. All right. um, So I think we're about ready to uh, move into the main review uh, James, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about the uh, making of this film? All right, yeah. So, obviously, the film is based off of true events. Um, it occurred in 1952 off the coast of Cape Cod, um, based on a book called The Finest Hours, The True Story of the U.S. Coast Guard's Most Daring Sea Rescue. It's a very long title. Um, it was written in 2009 by Michael Tugas? Uh, I'm not I think sure. it's Tugas. 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 Um, and Casey Sherman. 
shortly afterwards, uh, the producer Dorothy Alfiero got a hold of it. Um, and it seems, you know, that this is kind of in her wheelhouse. She she was involved in Goodwill Hunting, The Fighter, this obviously, and then Patriots Day. Um, so this, she, I think she really loves Boston. She's probably not happy right now, actually thinking about that. <laughs> um. So yeah, after after she uh, acquired the rights, she took it to Disney, uh, or. And uh, they purchased it in 2011. Scott Silver, uh, Paul Tamazi, and Eric Johnson were brought on to write the script. In 2013, Robert Schwenke was hired to direct, um, but he soon left to direct the uh, final two Divergent films. Um, which, that would have been interesting. I, I really like his visual style. Um, I don't know how he would have handled the dramatic elements, but I think... I would really have liked to see what he could have done with these storm sequence. I think he has a really cool, fluid style. But ultimately, uh, Craig Gillespie, uh, who had just uh, previously directed Million Dollar Arm for Disney, replaced him in April 2014. And then once the movie kind of started getting underway, Chris Pine was cast as the lead, Bernie Weber, or as you'll know him in the movie, Bernie Weber. (laughs) Um, And the always underrated Ben Foster, um, it was cast as well. Kyle Gallner from... We actually talked about how great we thought he was in uh, the remake of Nightmare on Elm Street. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he doesn't have a whole lot to do here, but I mean, like he, I, this kind of solidified in my mind that he's he's still good. That wasn't a one-time thing. Um, and then John Magaro as the rest of his rescue crew. And then Casey Affleck uh, plays the engineer Ray Siebert. With Dwalin, aka Graham McTavish, uh, Michael Raymond James, Abraham Ben Ruby, and John Ortiz playing um, notable members of the Tinker's crew. And then lastly, um, on the shore side of things, Holiday Granger plays his fiancee Miriam, um, and then Eric Bana was cast as a chief warrant officer in command of Chatham Station. Uh, and uh, filming began in November of 2014 uh, on location in Chatham. Like they actually used the real uh, Coast Guard b- building that's still there. Um, the USS Salem was used for the a lot of the interiors of the Pendleton. Um, well, and the engine room itself was a set they built, and that is an amazing set. And just a testament to th- the design team there, because the you, you never see a difference, you know, between the you know the USS Salem that they're using and the actual engine room it's the transition is so fluid because of how authentic that thing looks like that thing looks like it's worked in they actually went and found old uh, T2 tankers in, in salvage and like did like casts of the machinery and like got exact specifications of all the machinery to uh, be built uh for this film um uh, most of the footage of the rescue bow was shot in a tank or like on a gimbal in a studio. Moving Picture Company did most of the over 1,000 VFX. And uh, Carter Burwell, who's best known as the as the composer for the Coen Brothers films, uh, did the score. Um, so, James, uh, I believe this is your first time viewing this film. Uh, what were your initial impressions? I, I really liked it. Um... You know, I wasn't expecting to be blown away by it, but I think it really did what it set out to do, which is first and foremost to give 
honor and respect to the the real life events. Um, and I think in doing so, it, it achieved that. Um, I never felt like it was just too, like, let's just have an excuse to, like, spend two hours praising these men. But I, I couldn't help but really appreciate the respect they showed for the events. Uh, and I know we're going to talk about this later, but I, I like these kinds of movies just about people doing good things. It's, it's hard for me to watch something like that and, and be one of the people saying, ah, you know, take it or leave it, whatever it came and went. Um, I, it has its flaws and judging it as a movie. Yes, there'll be things I'll talk about, but just overall, I thought it was a, a really, really sweet movie led by a, a really great performance. Two. Two great performances. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I saw this in theaters uh, back in 2016, or January 2016, I think. Um, and I really liked it. It really uh, hit me emotionally. And it, it stuck with me uh, ever since then. It's, it's been on the list of films I wanted to cover on Underrated since we started the podcast. So I'm really glad we, we got around to talking about it. Um, and the big thing that is all uh, has always really uh, struck me is just how, how it's a you know, portrayal of very ordinary heroes. Um, it's it's a, like it's a huge testament to Chris Pine as an actor because you know he is one of the most like ridiculously handsome men alive, and we know that like from Star Trek that he can be like the most charming and charismatic leading man you can imagine, but. To, for him to be come here and and fully convince me that he's, you know, someone who is like completely uncomfortable in his own skin, and like terrified of talking to girls, and just and is just so completely awkward and unsure of himself. I mean, the fact that he can pull that off while being you know, when when you, when he is so ridiculously handsome and, and such a you know charismatic person it is really incredible. Like I I really love watching when films. Uh, portray introverts and i think this one does it really perfectly because like when you're watching him like watching his body language the way he kind of like tenses up whenever he has to talk to someone and is constantly like second guessing himself and like can't like not maintaining eye contact just kind of just uh you know completely out of his element like in like, in like social interactions, it, it is it's very very authentic, and I, I really like seeing when uh, you know people like like me are uh, you know portrayed uh, like that on the big screen. Yeah, it is honestly a lot of portrayals of introverts are kind of laughable because they just end up if it's played by someone who is kind of naturally charming or charismatic, they just continue to be charming or charismatic, but like talking less or talking quieter it's like okay but it, it's more than that and, and it is impressive that he can be someone who like like you said in star trek i mean he he was captain james kirk um and he played up all of his you know at, very commonly known attributes whereas here you know he I, it's exactly what you said he nails the body language averting eye contact tensing up in different situations and and then you can almost see as he becomes more comfortable as he loosens up and it's always he's always acting in a way that feels very very real and true to who we're told he is and what i love about the movie 
is that it's also not trying to convince us that he isn't like this good looking guy. Like at the very beginning, you know, he says, oh, looks was never your str- or looks was never your problem anyways. It's, that's another thing where it's like they're trying to say that, oh, this guy is awkward and, you know, he's not a looker. <laughs> and it's played by, I don't know, just a, somebody who obviously is not that. But here it's like, and even in spite of that, he just carries himself so, you know, unsure of himself and with zero confidence. Uh, I, I remember, you know, I had just thought of him as Kirk for the longest time, and then I saw him in Hell or High Water. And I was like, oh, never mind, this guy is amazing. And then in Wonder Woman, where he's he's also another charming lead, but a different layer than the kind in Star Trek. And then here, that's <laughs> like this very timid kind of person. And I, I'm not sure if audiences appreciate his acting ability enough. I I think he's a really, really fantastic actor. Yeah, he he has like all the, I think the versatility of you know a great character actor who could just completely immerse himself in any role he's given, but he also has the ability to to you know hold down a gigantic blockbuster. That's a very, it's a pretty rare talent, and I think he's one of the best young actors out there. Um, and I what I love so much is that you can see it's a very concerted effort uh, with director Craig Gillespie. And these actors to um to 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 reinforce the idea that these are normal people. Um, like there's there are there's never those moments of you know epic speeches or just just like a- every scene that would have you know become like tried to like in any other film would have tried to you know be to have a you know to have a speech or to just like we have the music swelling and they say something real in- heroic line. They just they very uh, intentionally undercut that with just moments of humanity. Like, like they'll stammer or start kind of mumbling or like have like long pauses and just, or, like, or maybe like kind of like nervously repeat themselves. It's, it's, he very intentionally tries to remind us that these are real people in a real situation and doesn't allow, and rarely ever allows the, you know, story to get too just sensationalized. Um, and I think it's a, it's a very, it's a choice we don't often see like at all in, in big films like this. And I, I really liked it. And I think it's reinforced um, by a lot of scenes and where the characters like aren't on the screen, just with Miriam speaking with the, the man who died, his wife, I'm forgetting the, the character's name, but here's that. Oh, Bernie. Yeah. He's a good man. You know, it's just, they don't stop to tell this like, Oh, whenever he did the, they don't, they're, they don't then give, you know, speeches about all of the acts acts of bravery that he's done. It's just like, oh, yeah, he's a good guy. He did this. And it, the way the town works, to me, reinforces that this is just, these are just normal people. You know, oh, I know him. He did this. Oh, this person, yeah, they knew about. Like, it's just, it all feels very, very true to life, the way it all works. Yeah, they really capture, like, the awkwardness and sense of community that you have in a small town where, you know, everybody knows everybody. And like you know, the, that time that uh, Weber failed uh, last year to save those people in the fishing boat—that kind of just that, that kind of stands in between him and a lot of the people. And it's just kind of this unspoken tension that just kind of exists. You you feel all the little awkwardness and embarrassments that you have in such a tight knit community, but also the sense of community where they all come together. You know, in the storm, you know, where they all they, they all go down to the docks, like the Coast Guard goes to help the fishermen tie up their ships, or they all come to the, they all come and, and uh, bring food 
to the Coast Guard station near the storm in case somebody's brought in. It's just the sense of community is really uh, well up, uh, executed. Yeah, and, and even whenever it starts feeling more like a movie, I feel like anytime it it does that, it's kind of earned. And it, it did so well setting up this idea of a town where it, it almost doesn't feel like a movie. It feels like maybe that's just how these people work, you know? And, mm-hmm. um, you know, they were inspired by this kind of event and this really did happen. And I think were it filled with these epic speeches and this and that, uh, the ending would have maybe fallen flat or if not fallen flat, have been less meaningful. But because everything felt so normal and so human, when you see a, a gesture and an act like that, it means more because, wow, that's just, you know, so-and-so who lives down the road doing this. This isn't a movie character doing this. Mm-hmm. And uh, going back to the actors, um, this was actually the first film that I really took notice of uh, Casey Affleck. Uh, Affleck um, and it, he's also playing a very, probably like like even twice as awkward and introverted as, uh, um, as Bernie Weber. Uh, he's just... I love how he's like, he's just so kind of in his own head and he lo- he's kind of, as I said, they say, he's, he's like married to the ship and you, you, you sense that like really high competence in his character, but also the fact that nobody really likes him because he's just, he's just so antisocial. But the fact that him, you know, now he's now the ranking officer who has to make all these life and death, death decisions and figure out how to get this half of a ship, uh, you know, it, to safety, it, it was really cool just watching him, you know, having to, you know, grow and reach out and, you know, become a, a true leader. And again, it, it was it was very subtle. His performance was, uh, you know, he, he got all the ticks down and, and the idiosyncrasies down. Again, he never has he doesn't have the speeches. He, he still always he never becomes a different character he's always that exact same character but and yet he gets a really good believable growth throughout the film to become the leader and you know the hero the ship needed at that moment yeah casey affleck is actually one of my favorite actors currently he and gone baby gone and manchester by the sea are some of my favorite lead performances in a movie um and here is it's so weird seeing him play this because he is kind of different here and he said he doubles down on this. It's a different kind of antisocial where it's a very, very intentional almost. Like he wants to be this way, just closed off from everyone else. But I love that they do give him an actual, you know, relationship with Graham, like characters like Graham McTavish's character, uh, whose name I'm forgetting in the movie. Dwalin. Dwalin. He's, he's yes. basically I saying they're playing the, the highly loyal, highly competent uh, secondhand man. Yeah, I mean, honestly, they could have just thrown the tattoos on his head and it would have been different. <laughs> axes, a couple of axes on his back, it would have worked. Yeah, you know, he'll, he'll never use them, but they look cool. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I like that he still had real relationships. You know, he was still a character and a, a human being. Um, and I thought he was given a lot of very human moments. And even in the scenes where he is kind of just, it's not an exposition dump, but he's really... This, the purpose of this scene is to catch the audience up to speed. He still says it in such a naturalistic kind of way to where it doesn't really feel like that's what's being done. So the, mo- like when, the moment with the egg? Yeah. like that. I, I love that scene. 
And it's because it feels it feels like he's explaining it to them in a completely normal way where, I mean, like I said, the purpose of this is so that the audience knows what's going on. But they the dialogue and especially his performance is in such a way to where it feels completely grounded within their context. And what's crazy is that I think that is the only scene in the film like that. Every other time something technical is happening, they just show it to you. And, and just rely on the audience to follow what's going on. Like whenever they're building all these crazy contraptions in the interim tri- and like building this makeshift tiller, there's ne- there's never a scene or or where you know Chris Pine and them are in the boat. There's never a scene where they say, "All right, we got to do this and we're going to do it this way." And you you know, and explain to the audience. They just through like really great visual direction from Craig Gillespie. They just show you what's happening and rely on your intelligence to follow it. Yeah, and I think all of that together, it all works to sell that. This is this is a fully functioning crew that existed before. Yeah, they, they they feel so competent together. Like each person knows their place, they know their job. <laughs> I love to see where they're they're calling down the uh, coordinates. Like they they had to have this uh, you know human chain because there's no radio to call down coordinates from them into where you know Casey Affleck's in the engine room and McTavish is in the uh, the tiller room and the, the, there's like. You know, the chain of people that have to tell from the guys with the binoculars where to point the ship. And it's just, it just, it's crazy the things they did. Um, it's like a miniature version of the beacons are lit scene. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I, and like you said, the, the scenes in which they are actually having to explain it, it's just, it's surrounded by scenes of them doing it. Um, and I just little, little things from the actors. Like, I love that whenever they all look, to Casey Affleck for the first time, he he starts talking to them in such a human way where it's like, okay, yeah, he's I get it, he's explaining to me what's going on, but it just feels very natural. Like, well, we're sinking, and then he just kind of laughs at it. It's like this doesn't feel like exposition; it feels like a conversation, and the movie is just permeated with with moments like that, or not not moments like that, but just permeated with this this sense of groundedness you know we're, we're never really leaving the film's narrative to to catch up this external audience it's it's always within a very real contextual reason and uh for the rest of the cast um i did i liked uh holiday granger uh quite a bit uh, as miriam i think her and uh, chris pine had solid chemistry and you know she she had this really kind of feisty personality that kind of balanced well off his more timid one um but I have some issues with how the film uses her um, that I'll get into later, but I think just as far as the performance, she's really solid. Um, Eric Bana, I don't don't normally notice accents, but I have no idea what the hell he was his accent supposed. I think it's supposed to be a southern accent, but it feels like it's shifting into a Boston accent half the time, and then mingle with his Australian. And but also, I, it, a lot of the issues also. I I don't think the film knows what it's doing with him entirely. So it's not necessarily all his fault, but he does. He, but it's partly his fault. There's, there's just a, kind of a lot of weirdness going around. Uh, his character, um, I, th- I think the performance is fine, aside from the accent. But yeah, he doesn't. The film seems to be kind of confused, and I'll get into that later. But what exactly he's his purpose is? Yeah, it's. It is what I noticed the accent like right off the bat. Where I'm like, okay. He's like going between like this weird Boston, like almost like calling like you know, hey Weba, like I mean he pronounced his name like everyone else does, but then he'll be like, all right now 
get yourself a crew together, you hear? I'm like, it's just such like this exaggerated southern accent. And then, yeah, every now and then you'll hear a tinge of his natural Australian accent. And I, I don't know, his, I, I think, you know, we, we were talking before we started recording about how sometimes accents are, we can let it slide if the performance itself is solid. But I think right here, part of his performance um, and his character hinged on the fact that he wasn't from around there. You know, like, oh, you're making fun of the way I talk because I'm not from around here. Like, that was one of the the ways the movie used to, like, help define who he was in relation to the situation and everyone else. And so whenever where he's from is, like, so important to the character and his accent, like, when he actually is doing it properly is, like, so exaggerated and then it'll slip and then get exaggerated in. This was an instance of where... um the accent did, I think, negatively affect his character in a noticeable way. Yeah. Uh, did you want to mention any other the cast? Um, I think that those are all the people that really get a lot of, of work to do, but I, well, I still need to talk about Ben Foster because, man, this guy is honestly one of the best working actors out there. Uh, he needs to finally have his like time in the sun because... In my opinion, as awesome as um, Jeff Bridges was in Hell or High Water, I, I thought Ben Foster stole that movie. But he, he's not, you know, in the spotlight in this movie. But even, when he is there and he's interacting with the leads, obviously he's just, he's as solid as ever. Yeah, it's weird how little his role is in here. And it was it's not like it was before he kind of, uh, you know, made his name. So, And did, did you even recognize him at first? He... He he, I don't know if he gained weight or something. He just looks so different than he normally does. I knew it was him once I saw him, but I could tell that he he looked a bit stockier than usual. Yeah, and the thing is, yeah, he doesn't get a lot of lines, but he he gives a lot of looks. <laughs> and he's, he's he's fun to watch, and he's kind of he plays this very kind of cynical, somewhat grouchy older seaman who up. Uh, is constantly a second guess, not not in an annoying way, but kind of constantly just ribbing and second guessing um, Weber. And I, I think they have a fun dynamic. He doesn't get a lot to do, but he he really uh, does a lot with what he gets. And if you're gonna have that side character presence, um, I think he's a good one. Mm-hmm. Um, so get dive into some of the plot. Um, I think I think I'll start with a uh, criticism I have. Um. I, I like that this this is a is a very short film. It's like le- it's less than two hours. You know, it it opens with a prologue of uh of Weber and Miriam meeting, which I, th- which I think is valuable because I think you this film in particular really needs that sense of connection between the guys out in the boat and the shore. Just just how important the town is and the community and the people the people who you know send their men off to go risk their lives. I think I think that connection was absolutely necessary. So I I do think it was good to start off in um you know a bit ahead of time but i i do like how most of the film is centered just around this one day but i think i think this film needed to show the uh the wreck of the william j landry which is the fishing boat that went down a year earlier and whoever had tried to uh go out he had tried to get a boat out to them and they just could not make it out and the the guys all drowned. They're they're men from that town, and so that that failure is kind of haunting him and affecting his relationship with the rest of the, the people, the, the townspeople. Um, and I know it's all referenced, but I feel like if they had showed that, 
and allow allow you know, us to infer you know, the motivations of his you know his failure to save those men to now you know what's driving him to do this incredible like superhuman feat that he does in this uh you know film in this story to save the lives of the men on the Pendleton I think if if you know you had bookended the film with the the, the, the failure in that that sense that part and then you know the triumph in the end of this I think it would have just given the film a really you know, just a, a really solid clear arc from beginning to end um, and would have you know saved us all the scenes of you know having just having you know they say they say you know, show don't tell and there's a lot of telling about what happened back then and we never actually see it yeah and I think one of the one of the ways that that would have improved it and you kind of hinted at it with you know bookending it with the same you know theme or at least visual theme I think being introduced to what the Coast Guard does with a failure would make the triumph that much more meaningful like if we see the bar for the first time and that he's unable to get through that makes I, I think that would make the scene where he is able to finally pass through it that much more meaningful because we go out there knowing full well what we're up against mm-hmm yeah um and it would have it would have made the scenes with you know the, of awkwardness with the townspeople I think that much more kind of tragic and sad for him as a character um rather just just kind of mildly intriguing and i I think time would have been better spent doing that than the entire subplot involving Miriam once they go out in the storm which uh, uh I'll get to that later I don't want to like, overload the criticisms but back to some positives um Everything that happens at sea in this film, I think, is kind of amazing. Uh, just the way he is able to capture the raw like, power of the ocean and just how it tosses around these huge tankers like toys um, is really well visualized. Um, I, I Maybe there are, but I can't think of a single other film, even a lot of great seafaring movies that is able to, you know, just to get just the the intensity of of what it's like to be out in a storm to be able to visualize that and with with i think really great visual effects I think the water effects are pretty outstanding uh for you know, only having an 80 million dollar budget i think they i just the storm sequences are some of the best i've ever seen yeah i mean as if i needed another movie to tell me how scary the ocean is <laughs> i mean that it's it's terrifying and i've never seen never seen it portrayed this way at least you know like with the whole concept of like the bar that they're having to cross that scene is just pretty spectacular um and what's what's crazy about it is the way they shoot it just tossing around this boat like there are moments where he's trying to get across and he he's not able to and it just feels feels like really like they should be dead but what what the director does that i like a lot is that, you know, as the boat gets hit, we'll come back to to the boat with them. Like, there's the, the one moment where they, they hit one of the waves and one of the guys just, like, flies straight up into the air and mm-hmm. smacks back down on the boat. Like, it doesn't really feel like, okay, here's a set. Now, here's our big CGI set piece, okay? And here's them kind of just standing nonchalantly on a set. Like, it, the way it blended just the boat getting tossed all around the place, um, even going through the water, which is one of the greatest shots, mm-hmm. if not probably the best shot of the whole movie to me. Um, it's it all. I feel like it keeps keeps the camera focused enough 
like with with our feet next to the characters um, and having them react in realistic ways um, that it never really feels like we're just watching this this entirely computer generated sequence. Yeah, uh, like some of the green screen is a little iffy, um, but. I, I do like how it really puts us there in the boat. Like, it's just water constantly pouring over them, and they look so cold and miserable. And just, you're like, what are you doing out here, dude? <laughs> and I, it's just that sequence of them crossing the bar, I think it's incredible. Just, just the, the power of the waves and how, as you said, it's just tossing this boat around like a toy. But then once he finally figures out, once he finally gets a handle on it, and you see him like slowly beating the waves. I love how none of that is explained. It's all just you see him like, you know, using like uh, working the throttle and timing exactly one like one wave. He goes over right before it crests. The other one, he rides along the side of it. And, and the shot of going like speeding through the inside of a crashing wave as it's coming over the camera. And then he, then he, he punches right through it is it's amazing. And just, and like another wave, he kind of rides up the side. It's just, it's very, it's, it's all visually shown how he is able to get across these waves. And it's, it's exciting. There's a shot where like, this is after they're in open sea when they go over a wave and it's like a point of view shot, then start going out. It's, it's like on a roller coaster as they're going down the side of this wave before hit, you know, hitting the bottom. It's the sense of scale and power is so effectively conveyed in these just gorgeous shots that, that give us a you know, complete sense of the geography and exactly what's happening at every moment. Uh, it, it's really, really well directed. Yeah, there were a lot of different cool things there to take note about that scene. Uh, I remember about halfway through, I was thinking, I, I don't think they've told me what he's, you know, like what his plan is in getting over this. And yet, I still know, like as we look in on his face. And like then looking at his hand on the throttle and it's still staying there and we're holding on that for, you know, a few seconds. Like that is clearly implying, you know, he's waiting, he's timing it. And so, like you said, it's all, it's just an exercise of visual storytelling. So, you know, by the second or third time he's, he's done it, we're completely on board with him. And obviously, like this is a very difficult technique to master, uh, considering they deemed it almost impossible. But we, we know exactly what's going on, and he never really had to explain it. And another thing I think was really cool about that scene is, I mean, he's, he's having to cross over the waves several times in this one scene, but it's not repetitive. It, and he always uses, like you said, different ways where one time we're, we're just racing through the wave as it's slowly crashing in over us, or we're punching through it completely, or just kind of slowly rising to the top and then falling down the other side. There's so many different ways that he shoots it to where we're seeing the same thing, but in, in different ways because he's adapting his technique. And it's it's just really, really cool. And it's it's so intense because they've established how dangerous the water is. Like, you know, if they're washed off the boat, they're gone. You can't, there's no way to rescue them. And if it's capsized, they're dead. It's just, it's so intense. Yeah. And then, you know, this, this was a scene of where they, like, they explained something, but it made complete sense, you know, just talking about the dangers, you know, I mean, pitch pulling, you know, that was something I had no idea about, but you, you hear about it and you hear about the danger. And then when you actually get to the scene, you, because of how good the visual effects are and how real everything looks, I at least could instantly imagine what that would actually look like. And so as the other, the crew who are less used to this look on and fear, 
I, I feel like I can almost mimic that just because we've we've already been we had so much time spent talking about the stakes that now that we see the actual event and that you know to me completely lives up to to all the danger we've been told uh that scene really feels very i don't know visceral and and dangerous like there was a very real sense of threat there it's like exhausting but in a good way because it makes you feel every bit of you know cold and and uh you know hard hardship that these guys went through and by you know by the time they end they finally got to port you're like man i i I feel like i was right there alongside you i feel tired now i gotta take a nap (laughs) that's literally what i was like man i'm sleepy i feel like i just put in a day's work i've sat on my butt all day but yeah they look tired and then this is still direction but going to the in, in the interior of the engine room I, I, I'm pretty sure this film was shot for 3D. Just there's a sense of like not in the cheesy way where they're, where they're sticking things in the camera, but there's a sense of depth to all the shots where it looks like like they were composed, you know, to give you know give it that depth in, in 3D, and it, it really looks good. Um, and the, as they're you know setting up these contraptions, you know, where they have they've got like rigged an I beam through the tiller and they're trying to pull it uh, back and forth. I like how. After the scene where he explains it with the egg, there's nothing else. It's just all of it is just the camera kind of swooping around, going from point to point, and just showing us every, you know, piece of this, uh, this uh, this uh, contraption. You know, as they're working, we know exactly what's happening, and just the way the it's difficult to explain, but the way the camera just uses the space of that engine room is really incredible. Yeah, and um, one of the things that kind of mirrors what they did really well with the the rescue boat is here there I never really felt like there was a disconnect between what was going on outside the tanker, you know, with the ocean and what was going on inside. The cause and effect felt very natural. Um and I love that, you know, as a viewer, we 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 can see the size of the tanker and so know like when it when it comes up on the shoal and it hits it, we know that despite that looking kind of tiny I mean, just think about how tiny the people are in comparison. And so whenever just these little things happen on the outside, we completely feel their impact on the inside. And there was a moment where I I actually like kind of jolted as they hit like a, a wave and a beam fell across. Another guy like nearly falls off this, uh, this ladder and everything gets completely shaken up. Uh, just the way the this, this sound design you're just hearing all of this clashing metal and this quick shooting like beams just getting knocked out of place and everybody ducking for cover. It feels, I mean, it feels like we're on the inside of a tanker that's just out in the storm. Uh, it, it never feels like the kind of cheesy just move the camera around a little bit to mimic it. Uh, e- even scenes just where there, things are, you know, relatively calm. Uh, there's still this real sense of movement. Like we are actually out on, on sea the whole time. Yeah. Um, it never, and I think that's why the set never feels like a set. It always feels like a very real, um, real world ship that we're on. And the, the sound design, there's always this, the groaning metal of the ship in distress in the water. It just, it just really places you. I think that the sound design and the fact that everyone is always wet. And there's just water everywhere. It just, it's really, you really feel it. Um, so yeah, just from a, just a directorial standpoint, just the fact, the the fact that uh, Gillespie, you know, not having much experience with these gigantic uh, blockbusters, was able to 
you know, so clearly visualize every moment that's happening. And I, there's like these shots of scale, like when the the uh, the the small rescue boat first uh, finds the ship, and we just see the see it like kind of dwarfed by this gigantic tanker. And they're like, "Man, maybe maybe we should probably just go climb up there and join them instead of having them come down to this dinky little boat." Yeah, um, or, or the the shot of their own lifeboat just getting dashed against against their own hull and breaking apart. Uh, just the the sense of scale is is kind of underlined by the sense of of power. You know, it, it reinforces the fact that this is this is a giant giant ship, uh, where even just a, a wave tossing this wooden thing is just breaking apart into splinters against it. Yeah, and the rescue sequence itself, again, like you know, just very visual direction where we see him like having to time each rescue to the waves and kind of pull out again and speed back in as the waves go out. It's just, uh, you, you understand everything that is happening without uh, exposition. I really respect when a director can do that. And, and then you sense the danger that when that one man gets swept away, just smashes into the repeller, even though it's, it's, I think I'm pretty sure this thing was directed for a PG PG. You still feel the impact of when the guy hits the propeller. It, it's, just the the power behind this the the uh, the cam- the water and the camera is incredible. Yeah, I, th- I think another or something that you know showing this power does is we we see how huge this tanker is, and you know on the inside when things go wrong and start breaking apart, everything feels so heavy. That only makes the ocean that much scarier because then we we go outside to these waves that are almost dwarfing this giant tanker. So throughout there's always and and then you know we move we move from seeing this these waves knock about this tanker and then we cut to the rescue boat and we're thinking man if it's doing that to that then you know this is even more you know tense so the way it's able to kind of use all of it all the environment and the sets to just constantly build this sense of danger and tension Mm -hmm. i think we just move on to my biggest issue with the film um is that in I, I like Holiday Granger as Miriam, but I think the film really does not know what to do with her. Like, after they go to sea, um, like, there's a part where she goes to the Coast Guard station and is, like, begging uh, Clough, I think it was, yeah, Clough, the, uh, the, the warrant officer, to bring them back. And that movie is really confusing because I don't know if the film wants us to agree with, agree with Miriam. Like, and it also, it... it it's part of the confused characterization with Eric Bana's characters. I don't know if he's supposed to be, you know, the boss who knows who's trying to do his job in spite of being new here and no one trusts him, or he's the kind of the arrogant jerk who's sending these people out to die and we shouldn't trust him. And the fact that Miriam is like begging him to call these people, call her, her boyfriend back, even as he's saying, no, I'm, I'm going to try and save as many lives as possible. Feels like very, uh, kind of disingenuous of the film. I just, I don't, that entire dynamic, I don't understand what is being conveyed, who we're supposed to be rooting for. And I, I can't tell if Clough is in the wrong or in the right. It, when, when this is happening, it's, 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 it's not good. Just to not, when, when conflict is occurring in the film and you don't know what's trying to, what they're trying to get across, it just feels really off. Yeah. Sometimes it feels like it's almost fighting against itself because there are scenes where I feel like we are, we are, you know, unequivocally supposed to be rooting for Clough, like this underdog who's not respected just because of where he's from. And, you know, like, despite the fact that his men have no faith in him, we're, we as a viewer who, like, have this 
the big picture, we're supposed to be like, no, he he knows what he's doing. And there are other scenes where it feels completely like the movie is asking us to root with Miriam and against him, like you were saying, where it's just it it is really confusing. You have the two characters that I that I don't think the movie knows what to do with, and then when when all like the biggest source of conflict not involving the actual rescue is happening between the two most confused you know characters in the film it just doesn't really work to make compelling i guess side plot or whatever and i i think that's the biggest problem with this being uh an adaptation of a historical event where a lot of times when you when you adapt true stories you still have to adapt it to work within the framework of a movie you know we there are tried and true ways of conveying stories and we kind of expect that if we're going to introduce this love interest who's very important to him, it feels like there, you know, there was a forced relevance to the plot. Whereas I, I think the movie would have been stronger if we weren't cutting back to this very weird and in, in a weird way, kind of pointless um, scenario. Like yeah, she, There's no resolution to it. Yeah, exactly. There, there's never that moment of mutual respect, or like a, a look of like "I told you so" between those two characters. This, this conflict that the scene spent, that the movie spends a good amount of time on, at least within that scene, never amounts to anything. And honestly, nothing she does there amounts to anything. Nothing she does after she's rescued really means anything. We might as well have not have seen her at all until we get to the end when she has the idea about the lights because everything involving her before then is almost entirely and it is actually entirely inconsequential to the actual stakes of the movie. Yeah, she goes and has a car crash, and she's like picked her off the side of the road, and she goes to people's house, like all of that. Like as I was saying, like if we had we had just been shown the wreck, of the the sinking of that ship, and the failed rescue attempt, all of that. All you know, all the information that's gotten across in those scenes of her interacting with the family of the man who died would have would, would just wouldn't have not would not would not have been necessary and would have added to the dramatic uh, arc of Bernie as a character. I think it's just yeah they you know they want to have this this, this strong female character but they really don't know where to put her and this this film is actually very historically accurate. I, I've been doing a lot a lot of reading over the weekend, watching lectures with the author. Like almost everything that happens like in at sea is like almost completely true to history but like that entire subplot with her is is something that the film added and it doesn't help yeah and i feel like it just like you said the way it, it shoots the scenes at sea where they're not even telling us they're just showing this whole thing take place and they're not explaining it we're just seeing guys doing something that it looks like they've been paid to do for years you know they seeing the crew work together to you know keep the engines running the the brakes all, all, the, all the pumps and everything it just it feels, it, you know, I didn't really look into a whole lot of this stuff, um, but just watching it, it felt historically accurate, you know. Um, but that that moment with her, almost all of the scenes with her on the shore after he's left feel cinematic in, in the wrong kind of ways, where this is starting to not really feel like, you know, a peek into a historical event. This... This definitely feels like this came from a mm-hmm. script. Yeah, and the, the scene after they rescue everybody and they're... I like how the film kind of acknowledges that the audience is exhausted and just kind of... It, it lets the music take over and just through these visuals. 
kind of couldn't phase how they got home and just kind of builds the a really a really kind of quiet emotion just to let let it just sink in how crazy this thing that is happening right now the, the fact that they not only like they, they went and got over the bar which they should not have been able to do in this tiny little boat they lost their compass they have no way of navigating they and then they stumble upon the ship in the middle of the night in the middle of the ocean rescue 32 men on a 12 man boat and then sail back home without you know without a scratch and this is all true this happened and i, I love that the film just kind of acknowledges like yeah you're exhausted this is crazy just like allows the emotion to kind of just fill you as they head back to shore and you know the the, the people on shore are turning on lights and when they finally get back to the, the uh, to port there's no sentimentality there's no bombast it's really it's really quiet just just you know the people all the townspeople kind of come around and get all the sailors off and just everyone's just kind of standing around exhausted and there's this moment where uh, casey affleck comes by and just pats Weber on the shoulders is like good job skipper or something and that that feels like the biggest emotional moment in the movie it's just this these little quiet moments of humanity like th- this is where like steven spielberg would have gone too far and had someone give a speech about how brave that was but gillespie knows we know that we've seen it we've lived through it all you need is that quiet moment of affirmation between these two incredible like you know shy people and we get everything um it, it's, it's it's really powerful i thought yeah, everything from the the rescue from the tanker onto the rescue boat and on, I think, are filled with great moments like that. Something that I loved is that that rescue from the tanker wasn't really like this. I mean, in a way, it is the climax. You know, they're on there, but I love that it, that's not when you know the the triumphant music begins. They get down there, and then like we're kind of still questioning if we can make it. Um, we've got that slow motion moment of just everyone getting beaten with the waves looking like even after the rescue, people still look completely defeated. Um, but one of the, another, one of those quiet emotional moments that you were talking about before where it's, it's not in your face about it, but we know exactly what it means and how meaningful it is whenever, um, I forget the character's name, but whenever he looks at uh, at Casey Affleck and he's like, "You've done good. You should be the last off the off the ship." And we know, you know, <laughs> which, which feels not being sailors, it feels a little weird. You, you know, but uh, it works. <laughs> yeah, and I I was so confused at first because my mind wasn't there. I'm like, um, what? <laughs> That's the last thing I would want to be told. And then you know, then I remembers like oh wait captain is the first on and the last off what i thought was like him being like kind of selfish (laughs) and trying to find a way to twist it into like him being the good guy i was like oh wait never mind that was like the most the like the biggest uh, compliment he could have given him in that moment and then uh after everything that casey affleck's character has been through when they're on this rescue boat and he's he just kind of looks at him like well you know our lives are in your hands there's just this sense of reliance and mutual respect between the two and i think it means a lot to the audience because of how how good of a job the movie did balancing the threat within the tanker and the threat on the rescue boat and what these two different men had to accomplish to hold everything together so when they come together and you see that kind of the very quiet introverted nod to each other like moments of respect 
Um, and then even from Ben Foster's character, as he gets up and he's just like, Weber, and he looks at him and, and smiles. It's not dialogue, but we know what that smile means. And so um, there's a lot of really, I think, moments where people may have, without watching the movie and just looking at a script, been like, wait, wait, you need more here. You can't just do this. But within the context of everything, it, it just works really well. Yeah, and there's the scene after they get all the guys off the boat and the ship sings, and you still realize, like, yeah, we rescued everybody, but you're still probably going to die <laughs> because you're, you're, you're in this overloaded boat in the middle of the ocean, and they turn on the radio, like, okay, we got everybody, what do we do? And there's, like, five different people, oh, go here, go here, go here. He's like, whatever, turns off the radio. And he, ha- he kind of has this speech to the people, he's like, he's, like, kind of talking through what his decision is, kind of trying to justify himself. He he kind of stumbles over and like awkwardly repeats himself. It's like a, a very anticlimactic speech. But for this character who we know, you know to become the kind of leader, it means a lot for him. It, 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 again, it's one of these moments that feels so human. Yeah, based on what we know about him, that might as well have been like Bill Pullman from Independence Day, you know, because that was a big thing for him to just kind of take this kind of leadership. It was one thing among his his crew that kind of knows him and what he's capable of, but to all of these people and to fully take on the responsibility of what it means and to publicly acknowledge it and, and try at his version of, you know, this, this speech to, to justify his decision to go about doing things his way. It was a, it was a big moment for who he was. Yeah. And I love that they, they, got over the bar without even trying and that that actually happened in reality this thing that almost killed them on the way out they just sailed right back into port and you know there's so much about this story feels like absolutely miraculous and the fact that it's it's true and these things happened and i i i really felt like incredibly emotional by the end just because the film had set up the threat so well the fact that they 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 overcame each and every one and the film never got sentimental about it, but it just it just lets you know what was happening. I, I respect it. I respect that a lot. Yeah. So uh, I guess I, you know, for my uh, final point, I, I I I love that there are films like this exist. Uh, films like this exist. You know, I, I, one of my favorite film genres is like, superhero films. I love them because you know they, they extol courage and self sacrifice. But I think movies like this are just as important. I, I think, you know, first and foremost, the fact that, that real men men went out and did this, it needs to be celebrated. Like, these people deserve the, deserve the acclaim, they deserve the applause, because, you know, they are true heroes. And But also, I think these stories need to be told just because, you know, to, for us to remind ourselves as a culture, you know, what a real hero looks like, you know, you have a superhero films. It's basically you have people with special. The heroes are the people with special abilities, and the normal people are the people they have to save. And it it it, it comes. To, it almost seems like there's a disconnect between normal people, like I, uh, between what a hero is and then normal people. But you know, to have, I think we need the stories to come and remind us that you know any any person can you know do these can you know have the courage to do these extraordinary things. It, it takes you know. Having that, all it takes is, is that that moral fortitude, you know, to when the time comes here, God forbid, that you're put in a situation like this, to just face down the danger and face down the fear and just do what needs to be done. 
I think stories like th- that remind us of what can be accomplished when, you know, when people simply make the choice to, to do the right thing no matter what and to have the courage to, you know, fight against uh, our fear. And I, I think our, our culture needs to, you know, constantly remind themselves that, you know, th- these are the movies that I, I would want my children to be raised on. And so that, you know, if, if the time ever comes that they have that, that type of, they have the mindset, you know, of not, not someone you know, looking for trouble and not someone who just thinks of themselves as a hero, but to where if the times comes, they can, they can, you know, stand up and do it. And it, it, I got really depressed after watching this movie and, re- and looking at all the reviews, just the casual cynicism with the way people just dismiss the very concept, you know, of one of, of one of these, you know, true story heroic films. They, they just kind of dismiss it out of hand and, it was like, I mean, what what happens when a culture can hit, have you know upcoming movies about Charles Manson, Ted Bundy, and H. H. Holmes, but there's they, they they don't feel there's any place or need for movies about incredible stories like this. It was, I, was, I was like depressed, just thinking like, yeah, our culture is doomed. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think to you know what I was saying from the beginning of this, where. I, I love the idea of creating a film for the sake of one telling telling a, a its own tight story, but to give to pay respect to these kind of people, the these true stories of of people doing seemingly like super heroic acts. Um, it, it stinks to me. It would. I I just think if there was ever any, any kind of situation where they were thinking about making another movie based on a true story that wouldn't get greenlit and you just say to the, the family left behind by these people, sorry, you know, like there's just too much genre saturation. Your real life hero doesn't deserve to have his story told. Like so long as, as respect is paid to the historical event, I don't really think that we can't have too many of these because a lot of the time these movies are how these stories get out there. I, I didn't really know about this event until the movie. I didn't know about a lot of, um, historical events until they were brought to my attention through these movies. And so, so long as people are doing courageous acts, um, I see no reason why we should have to tell anybody like, sorry, uh, we kind of found your story after we had told too many and it's not getting the big screen treatment. Hope people read about it in a book. Like it's, that's just, to me, it's almost wrong. And so I think that if anybody is ever willing to put legitimate time and quality and effort into you know, telling a story that has as much value as this story does, I think that should be encouraged. And I, I think if the quality is there, like I think it was with this, um, you know, it's, it's not an amazing movie, but I, it's still very good. And I, I, I definitely think it didn't deserve the, the kind of shrug, as you said, that it, that it received. Yeah. Like if, if it were a bad film, I could understand, but it, there, there is so much obvious heart and love and craftsmanship that went into the making of this film. Uh, I'm not going to go into <laughs> the rant. <laughs> All right. Uh, anything else you want to mention before we uh, uh, bring this uh, ship into port? I think this is probably the, the most puns we've ever used based <laughs> on the, the source material. Uh, no, I, I think we covered it pretty well. All right. Uh, so on its initial release in on a January 
29th into 2016, it grow it only grossed 52 million on its 80 million dollar budget, which it's uh, so depressing. Uh, yeah. And I can't even really, you know, shake my fist because I didn't see it either. <laughs> it's your fault, James. Uh, and it, it received like mildly mixed to positive reviews. I think it's like a 60 something percent on Rotten Tomatoes, and everyone's like, "Yeah, it's it's okay. You know, it's fine. It's nothing special. Whatever." You know, it's pretty much a collective shrug, um, and it's been pretty completely forgotten, uh, you know, in in pop culture. Um, so yeah, that, that's really why I wanted to to talk about this, you know, as an underrated film because, yeah, it's not perfect; it has issues, but I think it does something. It tells a very special story with you know a lot of skill and a lot of love, and I think these stories need to be told, and. Uh, if they were all told this well, I would be very happy. Definitely. Yeah, but I am uh, glad that uh, you know Craig Gillespie got a win this year with uh, I Tanya, which is uh, pretty fantastic. Also on a true story, so I, I I'm very interested to see where he goes from here. Yeah, that, that's one I really wanted to see but missed. Uh, but I I definitely hope. It, do you know if it'll be released? Um, to watch before the Oscars, I'm hoping to try to watch all of the nominated films beforehand. I'm sure. Well, they, they usually are. All right, so before, uh, before we go, again, I'd like to ask you guys, if you enjoy the show, to please t- go and re- uh, rate and review us on iTunes. If you want to follow us, you can like us on Facebook, where there is Franchise Fatigue Podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at FranchisedPod. And if you want to find our other episodes, they are at uh, FranchiseFatiguePodcast.com. And uh, where can people follow you, James? So there, there are really two places outside here. Um, one is Letterboxd, and so far I am making good on my goal to try to write a, a written review, even if brief, for every new release of 2018 and hopefully onward. So I should have at the very least two uh, by the time this comes out. Um, and you can find me there at JL Hamry. It's J-L-H-A-M-R-I. And you can also find some of what I've written uh, at Article Asylum. It's articleasylum.wordpress.com. Um, <laughs> I, f- I feel like I keep saying this every episode. It's hard to get to uh, finishing some of the series that I started there with with school going on right now. I've got about three tests on my horizon. <laughs> but I, one of these days, I guarantee it, my Star Wars um, series will be written and hopefully some other things as well. Um, but there's also a lot of great stuff written by, by uh, friends on there and my brother who, who have written some pretty good stuff. So you can check out some of what we've written. And if you want to follow me, I am also on Letterboxd as Gabriel Green. And I am on Twitter as Gabe A. Green. Um, and so next week, we will be doing the Toy Story trilogy, which I am really excited for. I feel like there always are for, uh, for Pixar. I just... There's a lot of stuff that I love reading about over at some of the people there. Um, and, I mean, Pixar has got such an incredible legacy and we're kind of... I mean, I think many would agree Toy Story is kind of what Pixar as a, as a studio is synonymous with. So I think it's a great series to go through. So, until next week, we will see you in the sequel. Please tell me we're taking that boat to a bigger boat. (laughs) 